ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. Ahead on the show, the man who uncovered that most American of religions, the wonderfully named Sheilaism. Now, whatever happened to Taliban 2.0? When the Islamic hardliners regained control of Afghanistan two years ago, there was a lot of talk about, yes, a conservative but a less punitive regime open to things like girls' education. That future was not to be. Indeed, the United Nations estimates 80% of girls and young women have been out of school since 2021. But is religion actually the highest priority for the Taliban? Professor Armin Sarkal is with the Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. He thinks ethnic nationalism is really driving the regime. I think the Taliban first will have to obtain legitimacy from the Afghan people and also they will have to really gain recognition from the international community before the world could really engage the Taliban in a fruitful and effective way. The fundamental demand of the international community and for that matter the Afghan people is that the Taliban should create an inclusive government. In other words, the government which has the support of the cross-section of the mosaic population of Afghanistan. But Taliban has absolutely refused to do that. It is a very much an ethnocentric contrival group. Afghanistan is essentially a land of minorities. The ethnic Pashtuns form historically about 42% of the population. The rest of the country is populated by non-Pashtun groups. But even the Pashtuns themselves are divided into two major tribes, the Durrani tribe and the Ghazai tribe. And the Taliban belong to the Ghazai tribe. And this is actually the first time that actually this sort of tribe has come to power and monopolized power in the country. You've written that there is no mainstream Islamic leader, there's no Muslim majority government that accepts the Taliban's particular interpretation of Islam. So is it even possible Possible now, given that they seem so particular, so unique, for anyone to nudge the Taliban, I was going to say towards a more pluralist system, but even to nudge them towards something less harsh. The Islam the Taliban has been applying in Afghanistan is not practiced anywhere else in the Muslim world. And in fact, it has been rejected by most of the respected Islamic organizations, as long as they stick to this incredibly ultra-extremist, self-centered interpretation and application of Islam, it's going to be very difficult for them to gain recognition also from a number of Muslim countries. And I think that's where the problem of the Taliban really lies. They are too sectarian and too self-centered, and they've come up with a version of Islam which is very unique, very much a feature of this particular group. What, for example, could major Islamic democracies like Indonesia and Malaysia do to put pressure on the Taliban? I mean, those are very functioning democracies. Is there anything that a coalition led by countries like that could do? 
Well, I think they could do a lot. They need to really put a lot of pressure on the uh, Taliban uh, regime in the country. And of course, the Qataris have been engaging the Taliban for a long time. And in fact, they enabled the Taliban to open an office in uh, Doha in 2013. And of course, all the negotiations between the Taliban and the Americans have been taking place in Doha. And of course, it was on the basis of the Doha agreement of February 2020, that the Taliban were able to eventually seize power because once the Americans signed the peace agreement with the Taliban, then basically acknowledged the Taliban as their peace partners in a way over the government of Afghanistan, which was allied with the United States. And the Afghan government was not part of the process of this peacemaking with the Taliban at all. So I think in a way, the United States and its allies at the end decided that we're going to get out no matter what. And of course, that's what precisely the Biden administration did. And as a result of that, neither the Afghan government nor its security and armed forces were really at that stage to be able to stand on their own feet and be able to keep the Mm. Taliban at bay. How strong is the Taliban in reality? Because, for example, I read where they have issued a fatwa against forced marriage. But as you say in some of your reporting, forced marriage is is back and you've got 12 and 13-year-old girls being forced into marriage. How strong is the central authority there? Well, the central authority is quite strong because they've got one uh, single leader, that's Sohanzala, which is sitting in Kandahar. He is the one that is uh, issuing the fatwas. And the rest of them, despite the fact that there are really divisions among the Taliban themselves, essentially have been following his fatwas and his uh, rulings. But that does not necessarily mean that uh, what Sohanzala or the Amir of the Taliban says is acceptable across the Muslim world, or for that matter, in Afghanistan itself. So what is really basically happening, that Akhunzada issues fatwas, and the Taliban and their commanders and the foot soldiers, and of course the ministry, they basically implement that. Mm. And that is what has really kept up the unity among the Taliban so far. But at the same time, there are serious divisions. I want to go back to this point that you made about Pashtun nationalism. The Pashtuns make up about 40% of Afghanistan, and yet I think they control pretty much every government ministry. I believe there are maybe two Hazaras who are assistant ministers in fairly junior positions. How much of what is unfolding in Afghanistan now is about religion and how much of it is really about Pashtun nationalism? I think it is a great deal about Pashtun nationalism and ethnocentrism. That's what it's uh, all about. I strongly feel that uh, Islam is used for a degree of a power grabbing and a political legitimation. This is not something new. It has historically existed in Afghanistan that uh, different groups have come to power and they've used a different ideological disposition in order to legitimize their position, in order to impose their uh, rule over the country. But the Taliban stand in a class of their own. And the way they have interpreted and applied Islam, Afghanistan had never really experienced before, apart from the time that when the Taliban was in power in the first round, that is in the 1990s, until they were overthrown by the United States and also the anti-Taliban forces inside Afghanistan. And then, of course, this is the second time that they have come Mm. to power 
and this time they are not much different at all from the previous time when they were ruling uh, the, or most of the country. Although we were told by American envoy who made peace with the Taliban that this is a new Taliban. Yeah, Taliban, Taliban 2.0, I think it was called. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Taliban 2.0, and, and they're going to be somewhat really different. They're going to be more nuanced. They're not going to make the mistakes of their past. But, of course, since the Taliban has come to power, all those predictions or profile of the Taliban has been not true at all. Yeah. One thing I find really intriguing about uh, what you've written uh, for ASPE, the um, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, you point out that neighbouring Pakistan and Afghanistan have had long border disputes. But I do wonder, Amin, is there an attempt rather than to solve these border disputes to actually blur the border region even more to try to create some sort of Pashtun nation, a unified Pashtun nation that straddles the current border between Afghanistan and Pakistan? The objective of the Pakistan military, and more specifically its powerful military intelligence, ISI, has all along been to blur the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and to transform Afghanistan in what they've called the strategic depth, that in the case of uh, another war with India, uh, they could really fall back on Afghanistan. That has been their main aim. And to, and to a large extent, they have now achieved that through this uh, Taliban proxy. And they are doing everything possible also to integrate Afghanistan politically, economically, and uh, commercially, as well as security-wise, with Pakistan. But the main problem is that there is something like 20 million Pashtuns in Afghanistan. Of course, there is no reliable statistics in the first place about Afghanistan. But there's some 20 million Pashtuns in Afghanistan, or perhaps a bit less, and there's something like about 40 million in Pakistan. If the Pakistani Pashtuns and the Afghan Pashtuns join forces, then they will be in a position to give rise to very radical Pashtun nationalism. Mm -hmm. And that will be the backlash of the sort of policies that Pakistan has pursued, because ultimately Pakistan does not really want a part of its territory to become part of a newly a state of Pashtunistan that is basically a territory south of the Hindu Kush ranges from Afghanistan and running right to the Indian Ocean or the border of Pakistan to the Indian Ocean. So I think there is a danger of a Pashtun nationalism rising and that could have serious implications for Pakistan as well as for Afghanistan. Professor Armin Sarkel, he's also with the University of Western Australia. This is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. After a decade of steady improvement in living standards, Myanmar has plunged back into deep poverty following the 2021 military coup. 22 million people are now in dire need. Myanmar, Zambia, Malawi and Cambodia are four new countries where the aid organisation Compassion Australia is starting new projects. Claire Steele is Compassion's chief executive. Claire, welcome. So what's behind the decision to start work in these countries? Firstly, we know that still 356 million children live in extreme poverty around the world 
And as we look at the countries we work, we see that that's changing. Some countries are coming out of poverty and other countries are developing greater need. And what is the definition that you use of extreme poverty? We use the one that the World Bank uses, and that is that a child living under three Australian dollars per day is defined as living in extreme poverty. And what are the kind of conditions, though, that you, you actually see in very material, concrete terms on the ground that have prompted this decision to begin work in these countries? The conditions are just really sad when you read them, even as numbers. In Malawi, we see children between 6 and 23 we don't see any children there receiving the dietary diversity they need. So they're growing up stunted and unable to really flourish physically. In Myanmar, we're seeing children not able to access school and not get the nutrition they need either. And in Zambia, only 28.1% of high school children are actually enrolled in school. So we're seeing multidimensional needs in all these countries we're looking to enter. Is Zambia, by the way, a country that slipped back? Because Zambia was on a trajectory of reasonably good development for a long time, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think you can see with that question the difficulty of a country to actually get out of extreme poverty and how quickly they can fall back. And so the under five mortality rate in Zambia is now almost double the global average. And that's just how extreme poverty can push back because of weather conditions, social conditions and economic conditions. Yeah, you mentioned weather there, probably linked to climate change in a way. I mean, what sort of ways is the weather affecting the continued impoverishment of these nations? We're seeing weather huge impacts across the world lately. We're looking at drought throughout Africa and really pushing into global food crisis because of that. We're seeing typhoons wreck the Philippines annually. We can almost time it when it comes through. In Malawi, uh, we've seen cholera outbreaks because of flooding and disease. So yes, weather across the world is really impacting communities at the moment. And how do you deliver your aid? We only work with local partners on the ground, primarily local church groups. So we look at finding partners that already have a great desire to reach their communities and children, and we develop them to be able to deliver programs primarily to young children. A lot of the research shows now if you intervene early, you can have a great impact on social, physical, mental, and even their self-identity. And I'm thinking, though, specifically, Claire, what sort of programs are we looking at that the donors fund? Our supporters across Australia fund so generously. We have mums and bubs programs where when parents find out they're pregnant, we train them in how to look after themselves, how to look after a baby and what a good birth looks like. And then we work with them from one to five to really help families grow resilience and to be able to nurture children. Across the world lately, we've had to be giving a lot of food. We've seen more and more families not be able to access even a single meal a day. And so local church groups across Australia have delivered over 30 million food packs, which I find extraordinary funded by donors around the world. A couple of the countries there, um, Cambodia and Myanmar, are, I think primarily Buddhist countries. How do you go about delivering aid when there aren't as many, for example, you know, local churches on the ground? Yeah, we help develop the local churches that are there. And 
we really do believe that local community groups can deliver these programs the best. So we would only deliver programs where we can develop local outreach. We work with other partners that look at systemic issues. And so we really partner with other organisations that can work in these areas as well. Do I read, by the way, that in some of these countries, uh, children are at risk, quite severe risk of being abducted for military service? Yes, slavery actually is rising across all the countries we work in and it could be military service, it could be online sexual exploitation, it could be factories, it can be mines. In all ways, uh, we're seeing slavery increase and it'd be a real risk for children living in poverty. I mean, how do you get kids out of that, especially out of the hands of, of predators? We work with local partners. This is not something Compassion is uniquely gifted to do. And they work with local police enforcements. One organisation in particular is International Justice Mission. They work with the local laws of the country to enforce them and bring slave traders to justice. And that way we can then release children and families from this continual evolution of slavery. Very good to speak with you, Claire. Much appreciated. Compassion Australia CEO, Claire Steele. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's 10 years since the death of American religious scholar Robert Bella, and his work was very prescient. In the 1970s, he predicted neoliberal economics would create a hole that many communities might one day fill with authoritarian populism. Bella also made famous the idea that as America lost its Christianity, as it has, it would create a so-called civil religion. Dr Matthew Rose of the Morningside Institute in New York has been thinking a lot about the legacy of Bella. Robert Bella was an American sociologist who I think could make a pretty fair claim to being one of the most influential scholars of the post-war era. His study of religious and moral communities was kind of widely studied and widely consulted outside of the academy. His work was used by politicians, by clergy, and by community leaders who sought his advice about the shape of political policy. By the way, was one of those President Jimmy Carter when he was in the White House? Did he consult Bella? Indeed, Jimmy Carter was just one of a number of Democratic presidents who consulted Robert Bella. Bella was brought, I think, twice to the White House in the late 70s for consultations with Carter, who wanted the advice of academics, including Christopher Lash, about the kind of moral drift and moral unease that had been settling in in American democracy. Bella was also consulted and celebrated by President Clinton, who awarded him, at the end of his second term, a medal from the National Endowment of the Humanities. And what would, say, Jimmy Carter have found valuable in Robert Bella? And also you mentioned the late, great Christopher Lash, but Bella in particular. What insights into the American character would a serving president find useful? Bella was really a student of the way that Americans thought about and talked about the nature of the moral and religious lives. If I had to kind of reduce a really extraordinary publishing career to a kind of single sentence, I would say that what Bella believed was that everything of the deepest importance and deepest meaning in human life was becoming increasingly obscured by the idea that human beings are fundamentally individuals who can define and pursue for themselves and by themselves an understanding of the good life. And if you think of that image of the kind of free, emancipated 
human being who defines themselves in opposition to communities and traditions and institutions. That'll explain some of the reasons why somebody like Carter and Clinton and clergy and other politicians sought Bella as guidance and for the kind of difficulties and crises within democratic and liberal political life. So he was the ultimate communitarian. He was. It was not a term that he often described to himself. He could be fairly described as a communitarian. He could fairly be described as a kind of Christian Democrat. And he could also be fairly described as a democratic socialist. He most famously developed this idea of America having a, quote, civil religion. What did he mean by the idea of America's civil religion? One of the most important ideas in sociology of the 20th century was the so-called modernization thesis. One piece of this thesis was that as societies modernize, as they become more educated, they come to rely on technology, that their economies become more capitalistic, as their political institutions become democratic. In other words, as they modernize, they also secularize, at least in the sense that religious belief either weakens or it becomes increasingly private. Bella was really skeptical about this story where it concerned religion. He thought that all societies remained deeply religious in fundamentally important ways. Famously, one way he described this was by using the notion of civil religion. And he argued that the United States, which was seemingly the most modern of all societies, was actually not all that much different from traditional societies. Looking at American history, at things like presidential speeches and inaugurations and a number of kind of civic rituals in our life, you see that it retains very distinctly its own civil religion. Mm. In other words, it had its own rituals. It had its own kind of liturgical calendar. It had something like holy documents. It had saints and prophets and martyrs and even pilgrimage sites. And this idea of civil religion, he thought, was the key for unlocking the kind of deepest American ideals and deepest American controversies. Mm. And that he thought that this animating religious identity to American life was something that you really couldn't understand American life without seeing it in these kind of fundamentally religious terms. We're talking here about what America's secular saints, so they Abraham Lincoln, obviously, yeah. but the founding fathers, I'm assuming, these are the sort of people he was saying that America was making sacred, <laughs> even though they were secular founders. That's right. For him, the most important thing that civil religion contributed to American life is twofold. It provided a kind of ground for the basic legitimacy of American ideals and institutions, but it also provided grounds on which Americans could disagree and could criticize those ideals and institutions. So if he popularized the term civil religion, I think perhaps his most famous book was called Habits of the Heart. I think he co-wrote this with four other people. What did the book Habits of the Heart discover about the United States and its people? Habits of the Heart came out in 1984, if I'm not mistaken, the year that Ronald Reagan was re-elected. The book quickly became his biggest professional success, and I think it actually sold something like close to half a million copies and also became a Pulitzer finalist. Basically, it was a study of the way that Americans from a wide diversity of lives and backgrounds made sense of their moral and ethical and religious lives. Bella and his colleagues were really interested in their responses to questions like, how do you determine what is good and right in your daily life? How do you justify the moral choices that you make? 
Americans had a really difficult time explaining the kinds of choices that they had made in their lives morally and articulating the things that were most important to them. So on one hand, Americans profess to want to live lives of responsible citizenship and religious seriousness, and they took very, very seriously the kinds of obligations and responsibilities that they had to their friends and neighbors and communities. But when Bell and his team really pressed Americans to describe why they had lived the lives they did, they found that their moral language had become deeply impoverished. When people tried to explain how and why they made moral choices that they used a kind of unbelievably narrow set of ethical terms, rather than saying that they valued citizenship and religious lives because of religious or political commitments, they found that people justified their terms almost entirely in terms of their kind of idiosyncratic personal preferences. What is good is what they liked or what they found personally satisfying, what they found individually rewarding. Mm. There's a very interesting character to come out of Habits of the Heart. Who was Sheila Larson? She's a real person. She was interviewed for the book. Sheila Larson was the name of a young nurse that Robert Bella interviewed. Sheila said that she was religious, that she believed in God, and that she took her career as a nurse and her obligation seriously. But when she was pressed to describe her religious and moral beliefs, Sheila revealed that she actually had her own religion. (laughs) And she called it, with kind of unbelievable candor, Sheilaism. Sheilaism was a voice in her own head that she identified with something like God. Well, it told her to be good and nice to other people, But Sheila also said that it also told her to take care of herself. And so somebody like Sheila, with this kind of hints of this growing solipsism, was for Bella a kind of worrying some sign about the kind of direction that American individualism might be taking in the 80s. Hmm. Well, it was very prescient, though, Matthew, because if you think of the social media-driven culture today, self-care is a very big thing, personal expression. This book, and Sheila Larson, one of the characters in it, was very prescient. She was a pace setter. She was. What Bella showed in Habits of the Heart is that Americans no longer had the ideas and the symbols and the stories that they could really express a rich vision of the lives that they wanted to leave. They were, in other words, just fundamentally inarticulate about what mattered to them most. Some of the most haunting sections of that book are when Bella has people really struggling to explain the most basic values and the, and the real sacrifices that they had actually made for their families and spouses. And so in the case like Sheila, she's just trying to describe her own religious ideals but finds herself just reflexively talking about her own personal preferences mm. in her in her own in her life in a way that completely disconnected from any other kind of obligations or responsibilities. Talking of personal lives, Bella's own personal life was quite complex. That's a euphemism. What was his personal life? The question that you pose has recently become more complicated and more interesting in light of recent revelations made in the work of a really wonderful Italian scholar named Matteo Bordellini. Bordellini had gotten access to the diaries of Robert Bella, and he had also worked closely with Bella's surviving family members. The details of the story here are not entirely clear. Sometime in the 1970s, Bella and his wife seemed to have opened up their marriage and had done so with kind of full knowledge of their own children. 
I should ask that Bella and his wife had a wonderful marriage in other respects. It's clear that the two kind of deeply loved and deeply, deeply cared for each other and they remained married. But during the 70s, they also experimented in relationships of their own. In Bella's case, that involved affectionate relationships with men. It's clear that the relationships were deeply fulfilling and in some cases quite long. It's not entirely clear to what degree they were or were not sexual. But what is clear is that for long periods of his life, Bella often felt quite conflicted about his own sexual identity. Dr. Matthew Rose, he's the director of the Barry Center. It's part of the Morningside Institute in New York City. And Matthew's latest essay appears in Commonweal magazine. It's on the legacy of the late scholar Robert Bella, who died 10 years ago. And there's a link to his article at our website. That is the show you can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and our audio panel beater, Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.